Is them penny candies, ma'am? Which ones? There, them stripy ones. Oh, them? Well, uh, no. Them's two for a penny. Uh, give us two, then, ma'am. Thank you, ma'am. Them ain't two for a cent candy. What's it to you? Them's a nickel apiece candy. We better get going. We're dropping time. Uh, so long. Hey, wait a minute. You got change coming. What's it to you? Hello, and welcome to The Screen Test of Time, the podcast where we watch every movie ever nominated for Best Picture. I'm Susan Araslin. I'm David Dahl. And this week, we are starting the 1940 nominees with another Steinbeck adaptation? Yeah, two in a row. And like... This one is weird because it kind of is like they listened to all of the criticisms we had to last time's Steinbeck adaptation and then fixed all of it in a month. Yeah, and don't forget the time machine that they had. Right. This one is Grapes of Wrath, just for reference. Yes, and it has some of its own problems, but boy, did somebody direct the hell out of this. And that somebody was John Ford. He really did. And I also want to shout out Greg Toland, who shot the shit out of it, because the cinematography is incredible. And Greg Toland actually did the cinematography for Citizen Kane. That checks out. Yeah, you really can see where Citizen Kane came from by looking at this film, because there's a lot of stuff in here that's like, oh, I recognize this style. (laughs) The lighting and the cinematography is just absolutely great here. The acting still has a little bit of that staginess I was talking about last week, but I'm not going to complain about it as much, both because I complained about it enough last week and because it bothered me less this time. I feel like there are fewer actors who are doing the stagey thing in this. Yeah. And Henry Fonda, who is ostensibly our lead, he plays Tom Joad. You've read Graves of Wrath, but don't worry, we'll get into it, is just incredibly natural and very compelling. Yes, I agree. I really liked almost everybody in this cast, and I honestly liked even the sort of really John Carradine is our, like, stagiest one, and it really worked for me, actually, this time. Because there is an aspect where that really works for the character, the same way you were arguing for last time. That it makes sense that this character is performative. John Carradine is playing an ex-preacher, named Jim Casey. I guess we should kind of do the plot. Yeah, you don't have to back up much to start there. (laughs) Right. We get introduced to Henry Fonda, to Tom Joad, hitchhiking his way back from prison to see his family in Oklahoma. He very quickly reveals that he was in prison for killing a guy because the truck driver he was hitchhiking with got on his nerves. And he runs into Jim Casey, to the ex-preacher, who's just sitting by the side of the road. But he has lost his spirit and his faith and agrees to go with Tom to the property where they both get, well, really just Tom gets a crash course on the Dust Bowl. And this is a really effectively shot and edited and directed scene that is done in flashback, sort of, but the way that the flashback is handled is there's this guy, Graves, who is one of the townspeople, but he hasn't been run out of town by the big company that's bought up all the land and is just sort of like 
skulking around in the town. Yeah, he's sort of been run out of town the same way everybody else is. He just didn't leave. So he's just sort of squatting in properties that the big corporations haven't torn down yet. Right. He's the one who really explains to Tom what's happened, which is that land dried up, people can grow things, and as a result, all of the companies that own all the land there are taking the land back. And that includes Tom's family, who he manages to hook back up with just before they are going to leave the next day for California, because their house, like everybody else's house, is going to be run over with a Caterpillar tractor. Right. I want to talk about the flashback part, because it was the point in the movie that's very early on where I thought, oh, wow, Of Mice and Men really suffers in retrospect from having to be watched right before this film. Like, watching them back to back was very stark. Graves is telling the story, but it goes back and forth between this incredibly dark scene in the house that's lit by one candle, and you have these extreme close-ups on everyone's face, and everything else is in shadow, and it's very spooky. And then when he's telling the bits of the story that are in flashback, it's very, very bright. It's daylight. There's this incredible deep focus that Greg Toland is already starting to experiment with. So you see the families and you see the car of the rich factory owners or whoever is coming to tell them that they have to leave. Sheriffs. And then you can see like the planes for just into infinity. And then you keep switching back and forth between this super bright light that is the worst thing that is happening (laughs) and then this dark very small very intimate space and it's really just some incredible filmmaking (laughs) really throughout the movie i just thought like oh we figured out how to shoot night like no one before this has figured out how to shoot the night and make it look like night you know it does so well with just darkness in this movie. The stuff during the day is great too, but it felt a little bit less like I just hadn't seen it before in the movies we'd watched in the daytime sequences. It's at night where I'm just like, oh shit, they've figured out something about lighting and cinematography that they didn't have before. Yeah, I mean, other than the deep focus, yeah, yeah, that is true of the day stuff. It's really only when they're looking out on like, a giant piece of land where you go, holy shit, I can crisply see things that should be in the background. Yeah. (laughs) But that's a very specific thing to notice. Whereas a lot of this is shot at night and really lends to the overall feeling of how frightening this situation is for the people who are involved. Yeah. I mean, the plot is just like, this is a meat grinder. And like, we are currently loading into the meat grinder. Yeah, it does have that same problem that you were talking about last week about of Mice and Men, where it just feels like we are hurtling toward tragedy, though it gets there in a slower pace. Yeah, and it kind of pulls out of it, which is one of the big differences from the book. The book just kind of continues being despairing to the very end, and the movie kind of switches some stuff around so that it's still pretty dark, but that there is a sense of hope for these people and the world. The unstoppable tragedy engine of this one is the trip out to California, the trying to find a new life. Tragedies from, like, word one, where Grandpa has a like complete breakdown about leaving the land, leaving the farm, 
and never really recovers, dies about five minutes later on the road on the way to California. And then they bury him, leaving a note on a page from the Bible so that cops won't think it's a homicide if somebody accidentally stumbles on the body. Right. And then Jim Casey gives the best eulogy anyone has ever given in the history of mankind. Like He's really good. <laughs> yeah. About just like the work of the hereafter versus the work of the now and being free. It's just, it's such a good scene. I feel like we're going to say that a lot yeah. in this episode. <laughs> yeah. They then continue on their way, get their first sign at like a, a, a sort of trailer park or just like a campground where a bunch of people migrating to California are all there. They get their first sign that California is um, not going to go well for them. With a guy who's migrating back from California because he says it's so miserable there and they're slowly starving you to death and he'd rather starve to death all at once than try and find work and slowly starve to death. Everybody's like, well, that was ominous <laughs> and gets back in the truck and then grandma dies. Grandma dies and... So they're stopped a few times as they're coming from Oklahoma into California every time that they cross over a state line because they want to make sure that they're not bringing in livestock at one state or that they're not bringing in fruits and vegetables in California. When they cross the state line in California, it's at night and the cops who are doing these checks want them to all get out of the truck so that they can look at it and mama says oh well grandma is so sick please can we just go we promise we don't have anything and the cop shines a light on grandma who doesn't move and whose eyes don't blink with the light in her eyes and says oh yeah she's really sick will you go this way and there's a doctor in barstow i think it was that he says it doesn't really matter whatever the next town is that's about eight miles and then of course the truck breaks down and they're pushing it tom says something to his mother about well we've got to get to the town because we have to get a doctor for grandma and his mom reveals that grandma has been dead since right when they crossed over and that she didn't say anything because she didn't want the guards to search the truck. Yeah. Which is so dark. It's super dark. And of course, this is something that's relegated in the bright daylight as they finally see in the part of California that looks inviting and is not a desert where they're looking out over all of the fruit farms or whatever. And this is another great deep focus scene where the trees in the far distance are very very crisp and clear in this period there's this pair of interesting scenes at truck stops and gas stations one is this diner that they stop in oh i love this scene <laughs> and they come in and are trying to get bread for 10 cents and the waitress sort of keeps bugging them to try and get them to buy something more expensive. Well, they don't sell bread. It's a diner. She's like, buy a sandwich. And they're like, we just need bread. <laughs> right. And the cook, who is also the owner, it seems, keeps telling her to just give him the bread. Just give him the bread for 10 cents. What's great about the scene is that then at the very end, there's just some candy sitting near the cash register. And they ask if it's penny candy. And the waitress goes, actually, it's um two for a penny and gives them two for the two kids that are with the Jodes. They leave. And then the two truckers who are in the diner say those were nickel candies. Those weren't those weren't two for a penny. They weren't even one for a penny. Then they get up to pay and just leave like 
five bucks as a tip. Oh, and the best way that they do it is that she says, wait, you have some change coming. One of them says, what's it to you? And walks out. (laughs) Yeah. Like they're total dicks about being super generous and nice. Yeah. And it's really charming. It's a very sweet scene. I think this movie does interesting stuff with not just being purely nihilistic about how everyone on Earth is just a garbage person. But it does remind you that also some people are just garbage people, like the two gas station attendants in this mirror scene where they're about to go through the Arizona desert. And these two gas station attendants just keep trying to warn them off because their car is shitty. Which you think is like kind of nice, but also isn't really paying attention to them or their problems. They kind of got to do this thing. And then after they drive off, the two gas station attendants have this conversation about like how they're not even human because humans wouldn't do that to themselves. Humans wouldn't let themselves get into that kind of a situation. They're not human beings because human beings wouldn't expose themselves to that level of misery. Yeah. So they suck. Yeah. But- Both those scenes give you a sense of, like, the wider world in an interesting way. But then we get to, after Grandma dies, California and the three sort of work camps that are going to be our, like, three views of what the world is like for these people. And the first one is miserable, and the second one is miserable, and the third one is not totally miserable, but their life still sucks. Spoiler. (laughs) But the uh, first one... They get there and it's just a bunch of people in the same condition that cannot find work. They're all starving to death. There's this heartbreaking scene where the mom is just trying to figure out what to do because she starts cooking for her family and about 20 kids just wander over trying to get food because they're all starving. And she is trying to figure out whether she can provide for them in any way or whether that would be endangering her own family. And then a rich son of a bitch comes in and starts offering people work. But a guy stands up and starts explaining that the work is a bit of a grift, that he's essentially just trying to see how many people he can collect, because the more people he can get, the less he has to pay them. And that by rights, you have to have a contract before you hire someone. You have to tell them what you're paying them. Essentially, I think it's more that if you're going to contract workers, you have to have a license. He both says you have to have a license and you have to set the rate in advance. You're supposed to set the rate in advance before you hire them. I don't think that was the legal argument. The legal argument was that he had to have the license. I, I think both were the legal argument, but either way, it doesn't matter because the guy just reveals that the sheriff is on the take for him. And immediately starts calling the guy an agitator and has the cops go after him. He runs, the cops shoot, and just shoot a nearby woman. And Tom, trying to defend himself, ends up punching one of the cops, really tackles him to the ground so he'll stop shooting random people in this camp. Casey, the preacher, because Tom is on parole, decides to take the rap for that and gets taken in by the cops. They all hear that because of what's going on, people are going to come in and burn the camp down. And so they pack up their stuff and leave and end up running into a mob, essentially, 
on the street, but Mob um, implies the cops aren't in on it, I guess, which they are and seems like a um, important detail. And they get told to just turn around and drive north, basically. They don't want your kind here. So that's all awful. Yeah. And then it gets worse. Because then we have the second camp, where they end up in a camp where things work exactly like the agitator guy warned them it would. But this guy sort of stops them on the road and says, like, hey, if you want work, go that way, take a right, you'll see it. And then they get there, and there's just a bunch of cops outside of the place and a lot of hullabaloo, for lack of a better term, that you as an audience member pretty quickly figure out is them crossing the picket line is that there is some sort of a labor dispute going on at this place, but they kind of don't realize that and just get gestured through by the cops. They get offered, what is it, like 25 cents a, a bushel of whatever, a, like a basket of cherries or whatever it is that they're harvesting? Peaches. Peaches! Even though there is never a peach shown in this movie. Yeah, and then there's a company store. This is just very clearly set up so that you can't win and you're going to slowly starve to death and then they're going to bring in new workers because there's just always going to be more. The place is a super creepy authoritarian state where guards have guns all the time and say where you can and can't go. Tom sneaks out because he's got a bad feeling about all of this obviously bad stuff and ends up running into Casey, the preacher who, in the meanwhile since we've last seen him, has become like a labor leader <laughs> and is meeting with these other guys in the woods trying to organize a strike because, as he says, as soon as they break the strike with the new workers, they're going to drop the price back down to 12 and a half cents. Um, and that labor has to organize, and Tom is skeptical of all this, and, you know, his family needs to eat, and so he's not totally won over by Casey, but before they can settle the argument either way definitively, they're jumped by the creepy guards at this farm, they get attacked, and Casey is killed. And Tom, in a rage, accidentally kills uh, one of the cops, or it's kind of... It's ambiguous whether they're a cop or like a rent-a-cop or what the hell their deal is, but like they're, he kills one of them. And that's bad news, generally speaking, and even worse if you're on parole. He also gets a cut on his face. And it's really bad. Yeah. It's not like a little shaving cut. It is very identifiable if someone knew what they were looking for. And unfortunately, the guards do know what they're looking for and are searching the camp for him. And they have to sneak him out in a very well-done, well-shot, suspenseful sequence. We're giving short shrift to certain members of the Jode family in this plot description because the movie gives them a little bit short shrift. But this is sort of the big highlight moment for Tom's younger brother, I think he is. I honestly don't know how any of these people are related to each other because one of them is an uncle and then there's some other kids who seem to be close to Tom's age who could be his cousins or his brothers or sisters. And then there's like the little kids. So... Yeah, your guess is as good as mine. <laughs> Fair enough. The youngest kid who isn't one of the very little kids, there's sort of a, like, just on the cusp of adulthood boy, is the one who's, like, driving them out and has to bullshit a story to get them out. It's kind of his big moment of growing up, and it's very well done and terrifying. But they do manage to get out, 
and then they end up at a clean camp that is run by the Department of Agriculture because FDR is great. It's the first non-terrifying thing to happen to them in like a solid hour of the movie. There's toilets and showers and a, like, council of people staying at the camp that set the rules for the camp and, like, nice dances. Uh, There isn't work for them. It's just a place for you to stay while you're looking for work and have a place to sleep and a place to shower while you're trying to figure out where to go next. There's a long sequence about how rad that place is and how rad the leadership is and how the police want to come in and break it up and destroy it because, you know, the pores are in there. And screw them, we got to chase them out of our community. There's a lot of stuff in this movie about how corrupt police are and not necessarily how corrupt government is. Like, it's a very pro-New Deal movie and a very all-cops-are-bastards movie. For sure. It's also a little bit, I think, kind of, I mean, for the movie it is, for a very progressive movie that, like, skirts right up to the edge of being communist. This is not a movie where big corporations are responsible for all evil. There's this interesting, like, passing the buck sequence during the, like, flashback in Act One, where the guy from the corporation is like, well, you can't be mad at me because I didn't really do anything. And you can't go be mad at my boss because, like, he's just doing what the banks tell him to do. And don't be mad at the bank. Which is not to say the movie thinks large corporations are great. It clearly doesn't. But it also doesn't really think that like that's the source of all the evil like they're kind of bad people doing bad acts i would actually say that the movie very strongly posits that there is an oppressive system in place oh for sure and that the oppressive system is bad and that big corporations are bad but that the evil they do is enforced by individual assholes. I Yes, but I really I'm saying sort of in a like The Wire style way that this movie is sort of interested in the way systems are corrupt and are systems of oppression in a way that wants to avoid the sort of like lazy top-downness of it. Like... All of the Frank Capra movies we've watched have this sense of, like, there's a very bad man in a boardroom ordering everyone to be bad, you know? This movie is like, no, there are bad individual actors within the system of oppression, is really all I'm trying to get at. Not that the movie is like, eh, large corporations are great and you should love them. Like, that is not that is not Steinbeck's jam. And I really don't want to pretend like I'm representing that to be the case. I think the major difference between this and a Capra film is that our view in a Capra film is from the boardroom. There were cops and gangsters in Mr. Smith Goes to Washington, but they didn't have any lines. We saw them spraying people with hoses and like they chose to do that. They could have not done that. Whereas this, we're getting the on the ground thugs perspective, or at least we're seeing them. We don't have a view of the boardroom because frankly, the Jones would have no opportunity to ever get to that level to have that view. That's a fair point. I think you're right, that it is less about whether the system is evil or the individual actors in the system are evil. It's just you are watching the individual actors. The movie is interested in putting the camera on that yeah, instead of diagnosing it one way or the other. And I think really what it shows is that defeating the system is not as easy as just toppling the big bad political boss because there's always going to be people who will sign up to be strike breakers, who will sign up to be head breakers. 
theirs. Yeah. Because it gives them some modicum of power in a system that takes power away from people. Yeah, for sure. You sort of see that in this sequence where they catch wind through this local farmer they're doing work for that the cops are going to come in and essentially start a riot at the dance and then use that as an excuse to come in and break up the riot, in quotes, and by that, that actually break up the camp. And they hatch this plan, and it's a plan that's very clearly dependent on solidarity. That it's a plan of everybody have a watchful eye for these guys. Then the moment they try and start some shit, just escort them out. Don't, like, beat the hell out of them, because that'll just give them an excuse. Just, like, grab them, take them away, keep them from starting shit. Literally pick them up, but do not hurt them. Don't yell, don't throw a punch. Yeah, this really lovely scene, and it's kind of the closest to a, like, the way the world should work that this movie gives you. (laughs) is this one little scene, and it's still a scene about cops coming in and trying to destroy just everyday normal happiness for people for effectively no reason. But it kind of offers a blueprint to a way out of that that is very sweet, I thought, and I just loved that sequence. But all good things must come to an end, especially in this movie, and some cops come through looking for Tom, And clearly the jig is up on that guy he killed back in Act 2. Or just that he's out on parole. Like, it's not really clear. One way or another, he has to leave. And he tries to leave without anybody noticing, but Ma catches on and makes him talk about his future and their future a little bit. And he dedicates himself to being Batman, but for social justice. Like, it's a wild speech, but it's great. It's really beautiful. It's like everything that people make out Rorschach's speech to be in Watchmen, except instead of being nihilistic and misanthropic, it's the exact opposite of that. He basically just dedicates himself to the cause that Casey died for and heads out. Wherever there is someone looking for work wherever there's a cop beating somebody i'll be there like he keeps saying repeating that i'll be there over and over again it's really good i feel like that whenever there's an x i'll be there construction has sort of suffused through the culture in this way where like it feels like we've played telephone with it enough that what has gotten lost is that he is specifically saying this to a specific person, that his mom is concerned that she's never going to see him again. And he is specifically saying, whenever you see injustice and people getting through their lives in the face of injustice and fighting back against it, you will see me. And that's fucking wild and great. And then we have the last sequence This whole thing is sort of flipped in the novel. They don't end in the Department of Agriculture camp. They end in the terrible, like, authoritarian camp, which makes it even more of a downer than the movie is. But we have this sort of quasi-upbeat ending where Tom is gone, but the family is moving on to find work and keep holding on and keep surviving And Ma gives a final dramatic speech about how essentially they're going to outlast the rich. The rich are going to keep being shits, but they're going to die and you can't wipe us out. We're the people and we're going to last forever. That's a a sweet thought. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) 
I don't know whether I quite buy it, especially since it's kind of invented for the film to have a slightly more upbeat ending than the novel where the cousin who was pregnant has a stillborn child and then decides to feed her breast milk to a random stranger in a barn as a sign of the generosity of man that will keep us going. That seems a little bit more of a downer than Ma's speech. I mean, he was starving and she didn't need it. Yeah, I, yes. But as a ray of hope, that's a little bit less clear than Ma giving a big dramatic speech on how they're going to hang on and survive. Is that how it ends? Yeah. The novel ends with the scene in the barn with Rosa Sharon. Oh, I haven't read it. I read the Wikipedia summary to the the novel. Oh, okay. And it's the very last thing in the novel, apparently. I don't know if I would say that it's weird so much as it's like extremely heartrending. But I think it's definitely of a piece even with this movie. While the movie does end on a higher note... I wouldn't even say it necessarily ends on a high note, but at least there's like some level of hope there. Yeah, it is obviously relative. And like this movie does not try and make the end of this situation optimistic by any means. Well, it tries to be optimistic about it, but it doesn't try and go like things are really looking up for this family. They're all going to be great in the end. It doesn't try and go like it's all worth it, you know? No, it's more of a like, we're resilient and hard scrabble and things are going to be terrible, but we're going to make it. Yeah. Not like we're going to strike it rich and live in a palace, but we're not as an entire class of human beings going to cease to exist. Yeah. Though, of course, if they did, then rich people would just make less rich people the underclass. (laughs) But what I was going with when I said that it's of a piece is I'm going to break format here and say that I can't really recommend that people watch this movie, even though I think it is very beautifully made and beautifully acted because it is it's a it's a downer. I mean, like if you want to watch a really beautiful piece of art, go for it. But I'm not going to like wholeheartedly endorse watching it. I mean, did you endorse seeing All Quiet on the Western Front? Yes. I've also watched like 90 something movies since then, dude. (laughs) No, no, no. That's not really, that's not what I'm saying. I'm not like judging you for this. I'm just saying like, (laughs) I'm just trying to remember if I'm right about this because I think I'm going to be the one that this time argues like, no, watch the downer movie. I get what you're saying. I don't think you're wrong. I think a word of warning of like, this is a real bummer (laughs) is worth it. But I think I am going to recommend people watch this movie. This is the kind of old movie that when we started this project, I was thinking, oh, it'll be nice to like be educated on some of like the greatest movies of all time. Yeah, I mean, that's fair. I'm just saying I'm not going to jump in and be like, you have to watch this movie. It's going to be like, uh, if you're a film person, if you're a literature person who likes big, sweeping, important novels that are not necessarily a joy to experience. Sure, you should watch it. It's great. Because we just kind of got it out of the way super fast at the beginning, I don't think we've talked enough about, like, 
how good the performances are in this movie. Henry Fonda is so damn good. And I was really happy to see him because the only thing that we've watched him in so far was Jezebel, which was Bingle answered. Yeah. And also was awful. And like, he was awful in it because his character was awful. He's incredibly beautiful. And in a way that is so different from how I usually talk about beautiful people on this podcast, it's not in a way where it's like, oh, he's hot. And I totally would do him if I had been 25 and 30s he looks like in all of these very high contrast light and shadow night shots he almost looks like a painting he's like aesthetically beautiful even more than he is attractive i mean he's attractive but he just looks really good on film <laughs> carradine is the same way too something about their bone structure and all of the cheekbones that they have, it really works well with those really deep shadows. The makeup and costumes in this movie also do such a better job of selling the economic straits that these characters find themselves in than the Of Mice and Men makeup and costumes did. You know, it's not like they seemed like they were having a great time in that movie, but everyone in this looks just so believably dirty and worn down and miserable. And there's a really high contrast between the migrant workers and people who are not. The gas station attendants were so spotless that it was jarring. Yeah, for sure. And you didn't get that in Of Mice and Men. Like, the guy who owns the ranch obviously is more wealthy than the people he pays to work the ranch, and everybody just looked sweaty in that movie. <laughs> yeah, but again, I'm not going to go all in on you should watch this movie. I think you're right that, like, it's a bummer. It's not for everybody. I think I'm going to say, should you watch this movie? Yes. Must you watch this movie? Not really. If you decide you don't need that in your life right now, I respect that. Yeah, I think that's kind of what I'm getting at. Will you be more culturally rounded if you watch one of the greatest films ever made? Yeah. Is that as important to you as your mental health right now? If you answer no, then like, maybe go watch The Wizard of Oz. Yeah. <laughs> or like, It Happened One Night, or something that ends on an unquestionable, upbeat note. Should we rate this movie? Yes, I forgot we didn't do that since I skipped that part. <laughs> <laughs> That's fine. Um, it just occurred to me because I was just racking my brain for a reason not to give this movie a 10, and I'm not sure I have one. I don't either, because the only complaint I have about the movie is that it has a meditative pace, but that's not wrong for the movie. Uh, yeah, I think it's an intentional effect that you really kind of have to sit with these people through everything. Yeah. Yeah, I'm gonna go ahead and give it a 10. I am too. And I think that of all the movies that we have watched where you see like, oh, it was chosen for preservation because of cultural significance or so-and-so named it in the best films of all time. And I've been like, well, are you fucking kidding me? This is the one where I go, yeah, that sounds about right. Yeah, it's that it's one of the first 25. It's that they did it in the first round. It's that thing where every year the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame is a little bit more like, I mean, I guess let's like, let's put like- Dead Mouse is rock, right? Yeah, we've kind of <laughs> hit all the obvious ones- so, like, did we do Journey yet? Yes? Okay. <laughs> Fuck. Okay. This is like, they Strawberry decided they were going clock. to- <laughs> They decided they were going to preserve movies in the Library of Congress that are historically significant and immediately went, Grapes of Wrath. 
And like, yeah, good call. Yeah, oh yeah. It's an excellent movie and I have no criticisms for it as a piece of art. I think it's really that I don't feel like we've watched a movie in a long time that was like this. And I had gotten out of practice for it because Grand Illusion was definitely meditative, but it was very funny and it had a kind of gallows humor lightheartedness to it that this does not have. It's very sincere. Yeah, it moved within itself. Like the plot was kind of a shaggy dog story because kind of that was the point is that the whole thing was pointless. But individual scenes, exchanges of dialogue were kind of propulsive and kept you moving forward. And there aren't a whole lot of propulsive scenes in this movie. There aren't a whole lot of like, yeah, what's going to happen next? It's like, oh, Christ, what's going to happen next? Oh, God. Yeah, there's not an obvious plot when you start the beginning. There's no saving of the cat. Yeah. And that's fine. I actually often prefer that. Whereas with Of Mice and Men, it was more like skin the cat than save the cat. But it was really obvious where this was going from, you know, the first line. And Grapes of Wrath is more, let's follow these people who are representative of a, an entire class of people during a time in U.S. history and their suffering. I don't know that I would necessarily say that they're like uplifting triumphs of the human spirit, but there are moments of generosity or of people working together even through this tough time, like the truck drivers in the diner or... Everybody working together to save the dance. Yeah, when Ma feeds those kids what they have of their food, even though it's not very much. Yeah. And she's torn about it, because they're hungry too. God, this is a good movie that's just such a huge bummer. <laughs> you know, I'm not gonna, like, go rewatch this movie tonight or something. For sure, I've kind of gotten enough Grapes of Wrath in my life for a while. But, yeah, it's good. Yeah. So next week, we are watching the winner of 1940, which is Rebecca, and is also our 100th episode, believe it or not. Man, what a good thing to hit 100 on. Yeah, I'm really glad it wasn't like Jezebel, yeah. or even something that wasn't that bad, but like- Four smart girls. <laughs> yeah, like, woo. And I'm excited about this one because I have- been to sleep no more three times and i would really love to understand the other half of that narrative <laughs> <laughs> yes but until then this was a movie it was a really damn good movie yeah <laughs> bye everybody bye i'll be all around in the dark i'll be everywhere wherever you can look wherever there's a fight so hungry people can eat i'll be there Wherever there's a cop beating up a guy, I'll be there. I'll be in the way guys yell when they're mad. I'll be in the way kids laugh when they're hungry and they know supper's ready. And when the people are eating the stuff they raise and living in the houses they build, I'll be there too.